I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. Well, if it was Epstein last week with new disclosures, it's the post office scandal this week. And of course, we're on, on, on it as always. Uh, terrible things coming out. And I mean, what's so shocking is people have known about this for years. And it needs a TV drama to force any action. That is right. You're so right. For people who don't know, we're, this program is, is going to be about the Cleveland Street scandal. So stay tuned for that or fast forward uh, if you're not interested in the post office scandal. But you should be. You really should be because it is gobsmacking. And every day there's more. So we thought we'd do a little bit of an upsum now because we did cover the story. Was it seven, eight months ago? Yeah, with Nick Wallace, who wrote you know the book on the subject, and and I think we're hoping either he or someone else involved in the case may come back and talk to us at greater length. But we wanted to bring people up to speed with what was going on. Yes, we did. Um, and Nick is, uh, if you haven't watched that program, please check it out because it uh, he, Nick gives a brilliant account of the scandal itself and his role as an investigative journalist in exposing it against all the odds, actually. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, permission to rant, Andrew. Do I have your permission to rant? Yes, of course. Yes, we we love. This is an opportunity to rant. I don't really do soapbox stuff on the podcast. It's just this story. You know, we, we mentioned when we did the original program that the post officers and the postmasters, the postmistresses, had this sort of slightly eccentric but much loved role in British society. The post office itself, it was just one of those institutions that you trusted. You know, and it's probably wrong to romanticize people, but I'm going to do it anyway. 
because, you know, our friends, our neighbours, in fact, Jay and Aperna Patel, and yeah, like many of the post people who worked in post offices, they were second generation immigrant family working their way up. Lovely people, good friends of ours. Our kids went to school with our kids every day, all hours there to meet people in person. You know, that personal service that so many people feel is lacking in our modern age with your parcels and your letters and your problems with your benefits. When they retired, they threw a a big party in the the local golf club. Sounds very posh. It's like a nine hole course. And everybody came and it was so heartwarming. And all of that, not for them, thankfully, but all of that good feeling about this institution has been washed away by this kind of nasty, cruel, bullying, insensitive institution that just sacrificed all its goodwill and forgot about its people in in honour of this bloody computer system that never worked, then lied about it and bullied people, and it is quite remarkable. Really and, and 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 the people who bullied the others went on to, it's a bit like the Bashir case. The ones who, in a sense, were part of the cover up were promoted, and the ones who stood against it were were um, had had difficulties. And it's the same here. I mean, we've seen Paula Vanell's having to give her back her CV, but it's a much bigger thing than one person. Well, there I mean, was this astonishing me, this, this astonishing display yesterday. This investigator turned up, yeah, looking all tough in his black suit. And he sat there a few yards from some people, some women he'd sent to prison, or his investigation had sent to prison. And, you know, it just came, it all came out that he he, got, he had all this power. He had the right to interview people under caution. He wasn't a police officer, but he was effectively had that power because the post office was able, I think still is able, to bring prosecutions itself. Um, and some of the testimony from some of his interrogations that he and his colleagues had done was read and these women, they're in tears. They're saying, I don't know where their money's gone. Um, you know, I haven't stolen it. And, they, and he's saying, you're telling a pack of lies, you know, and just browbeating them like a sort of Gestapo interrogation. Exactly. It's and about, he gets a bonus. Can... They got a bonus for this behavior. Ah, yeah. Sorry. It was a sort of bounty. Yes, it was. But well, but is, it, is it just the post office? Or, I mean, or should, you know, they're now, uh, for example, criticizing politicians like Ed Davey. They're criticizing um, the uh, court system. Uh, there are concerns about the, the Crown Prosecution Service. I mean, yeah. it seems to me everyone was involved in this, and and it's it the idea that suddenly, uh, out of nowhere, all these people were defrauding the post office who had worked for it very happily for years should have been uh, alarm bells. Well, and Nick explained it himself, didn't he? They there was a level of suspicion at the top about the post office workers. They thought some of them were on the fiddle. Do you know what? Maybe they were, but. When this computer started spitting out all this bad data, they immediately thought, right, we've got you. They didn't think, come on, is it really plausible that so many people with an unblemished record have suddenly started stealing from us and effectively from each from the public? Um, and, and they just pursued it. Even when, as we now know, internally they were beginning to realize that the computer system had failings, could give bad readings, and that never seemed to work its way down to the people at the sharp end who were being very, very sharp and horrible to these people who are now being, getting vindicated after years of suffering and they lost their jobs, their livelihoods. Some of them even killed themselves. I mean, it's an appalling story. I just want to read one thing because it just summed it up for me. Tom Peck in The Times. That's why you're listening, Tom, but if you are, oh, good on you for writing this. He's talking about this this man I just mentioned and his testimony. And he went up to one of his one of the women he'd imprisoned or had been imprisoned. I don't know if it was by him. 
And I, I said to her, I'm quoting now, I sat next to her and asked her during the lunch break what she made of the morning's evidence. He's just pure post office, isn't he? She said. A phrase of which everyone in the land suddenly knows the meaning. A once almost unimaginably venerated institution came in its own cabinet minister, had children's cartoons made about it, is now a byword for vindictive malevolence on a breathtaking scale, pure post office. Wow. Wow. So there you are. Yes. No, no. Well, I think it's good that they're coming after the, the, the computer uh, 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 the person who, who, in a sense, was effectively running the computer, because at least they they should be held to account for the failings of the system. That just taps into a lot of people. I mean, I'm just getting old. But, you know, a lot of people feel that you know the, the idea of service, especially face to face service, is just. And you know, you've got the algorithm, and you've got the the email that you can't reply to, and and then you have to have the code, and then you can't get to talk to anybody about anything, and it all seems very, very distant and quite threatening sometimes. Yeah, but, but, you know, Nick wrote a very well-received book. There was a Panorama program. There was a Radio 4 series and nothing was done. It's, 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 I mean, thank goodness that, you know, we have this drama series, but it's, it wouldn't have happened. And I think there are a number of other scandals. I mean, it's now raising the issue of the infected blood scandal, which is another one, a huge miscarriage of justice, which I think we're hoping that we'll address in the next few weeks. We must. We've talked before actually about these things. They often, they bubble along for years, like Martin Bashir. Everybody sort of talked about it in yeah. our business. Or suddenly, bang, it becomes a matter for public debate and things yeah. are done. And this yeah. scandal is another example. Hillsborough, you... I think, was another one. Yes. Well, we're keen to do a, a talk a, a talk about Hillsborough. It's just finding the right person, really, to, to, to talk about it. Yeah. Well, thank you for letting but... me rant. Yeah, no, no. Well, it's 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 in some ways it, it's sort of what we're talking about that somehow the system is broken down that that the law-abiding citizens are sort of being held well being persecuted by by uh, a, a government which has no proper and an authorities and establishment which has no proper uh, accountability That's transparency. Right. There's something, something so just petty and small-minded about the way it all it all happened and remorseless, just crushing these people. Um, well, I, what I found most shocking was the post office tried to get Justice Fraser, who was the man in charge of the case, off the case, trying to interfere with the legal system. I mean, my own feeling is people shouldn't just be giving back CBEs, they should be prosecuted. Well, I think with the, with the um, current feeling in the country, that would be very popular. Uh, yeah. it, it could well happen. A lynch mob. Well, I don't, I don't agree with lynch mobs either. Um, it's just... It's just very. Um, I suppose well, before we get ourselves too depressed, it also does show that people like Nick and also my other old colleague John Sweeney on Panorama and a few other people, the Awkward Squad, who made a lot of noise and caused a lot of trouble, they did actually in the end manage to get the public's attention, which is why the drama was written. And good on ITV for doing that. Yeah, and we've now got an inquiry. Let's see if anything comes out of that. But. Um... I mean, that's what we want to do. We want to find more of these stories, always open to suggestions, because we believe very much in campaigning journalism. Uh, you know, it, we, if it's the only way to hold people in power to account, then then we will do it. Very, very good. Very good. Well, um, from the post office scandal... To more post office century, scandals. To, a, to another scandal that actually has a post office connection. Yes, exactly. A very long time ago. Do you want to introduce the, the audience to the wonderful but rather complicated world Cleveland Street. Yes, the Cleveland Street scandal is, I suppose, one of the great Victorian scandals. Uh, took place shortly before the Oscar Wilde trial, uh, and it revolved around 
basically a male brothel in central London, uh, and, uh, which various members of the establishment were, were, uh, using. This, of course, was a time when, um, it was certainly, um, if not laws against homosexuality, a great deal of, of public opinion against it. Uh, and there was a big cover up, which went all the way up to, in effect, Buckingham Palace. Uh, and there's a big question about whether a member of the royal family was in fact involved in this. We've got uh, Neil McKenna, who's written two very highly acclaimed books about Victorian scandals, one on, on some cross-dressers called Fanny and Stella, another on Oscar Wilde. Uh, and he's presently doing a book on the Cleveland Street scandal, and he's going to give us a little bit more background about it, the characters, many of them aristocratic, uh, and uh, how there was, in some ways, a fight between uh, the legal authorities and the government over this 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 story. Well, having got myself all wound up over the post on this, um, the, the millage of sex, royalty, scandal, court cases. And post office. And the post office. Sounds like a lovely treat. Should we do it? Let's go. Okay. Bye. Right. We're in business. We're in business. We're pleased to have this week uh, Neil McKenna, who's written two acclaimed books, one on Oscar Wilde and one on Fanny and Stella. And today he's going to talk about the Cleveland Street scandal, which a lot of listeners have asked about. And I think one of your great strengths is you're giving the context, I think, to this Victorian scandal, which many people don't know about. Mm. Uh, and I think what people find so fascinating about your books are the detail that you give about uh, the context in which these scandals often take place. Mm. But can, can you tell us a little bit about, about the scandal? Well, what's it all about? Okay, the scandal began in early July 1889 at the central post office in St. Martin-le-Grand in Farringdon. And um, a boy called Charles Swinscoe was being interviewed over the theft of some money in the post office. He was a telegraph messenger boy. He was one of 2,000 telegraph messenger boys who started about the age of 12 and uh, had had to leave by the time they were 18. He was searched and he was found to have 16 shillings and nine pence on him, which was an enormous sum of money. He probably earned three or four shillings a week. So um, Luke Hanks, who was the post office detective, formerly um, in the Metropolitan Police, said to him, where did you get this money? And he said, I got it um, quite legally. I got it from uh, a Mr. Hammond, uh, and I got it for going to bed with gentlemen. And suddenly all hell broke loose. So from that moment, the scandal began, and it snowballed and snowballed, there are at least four trials involved in this and at least seven strands of the scandal. But in essence, the, the, the heart, the nub, the very beating centre of the scandal is whether or not Prince Albert uh, Victor, known as Prince Eddie, who was the oldest son of the Prince of Wales, so therefore heir presumptive to become king one day, visited Cleveland Street and had sex with male prostitutes. And that's the nub of the scandal. And you have to bear that in mind because everything 
all the strange and confusing and complicated events all spring from this central fear. Now, whether or not this fear was true, or whether or not it was a uh, a hair set to uh, put pe- throw people off the scent, we don't know. But I would say, on balance, it probably was true. Gosh, because was Prince Eddie um, bisexual? Because, I mean, he was well known for his affairs with women as well. Well, Prince Eddie was a, a, a source of great... Uh, anxiety to his parents. I mean, he was supposed to have had uh, sex with female prostitutes. He was a suspect, perhaps posthumously, in the Jack the Ripper story. Um, He went to India and allegedly fathered a child with a woman in India, an English woman in India. So we don't know whether he was bisexual or not. What we do know is that as this scandal was unfolding and spilling out um, like a fountain in all directions, a very dodgy solicitor representing Lord Arthur Somerset and some of the other people in the scandal went to see Hamilton Cuff, the assistant uh, director of public prosecutions, and he said... If Lord Arthur Somerset is prosecuted, it will emerge inevitably that Prince Albert Victor, Hamilton Cuff referred to him as PAV, and it was pasted over, PAV, Prince Albert Victor, Prince Eddie, heir presumptive to the imperial throne, will be named. And, I mean, there are parallels, of course, with the Jeffrey Epstein scandal of, of at the moment and a prince being named. But we're not... Prince Andrew is not the heir to the, 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 the British throne. Prince Eddie was uh, at a time when royalty was perhaps two or three times more important than it is now. So it was a very, very, very serious threat and suddenly, heaven and earth was being moved to prevent this name coming out. And was this all going on behind the scenes, or were there um, was there quite a lot of coverage in the papers about this? Well, in it, I'll just take you back slightly. So, after this boy said he got it from going to bed with gentlemen, um, he confessed that he'd been inculcated into prostitution, induced into prostitution by another post office employee called Henry Newlove. And Henry Newlove lived in Camden, and he was arrested. And he said, "Um, I think it's very unfair that you're arresting me and charging me when some of the gentlemen who went to Cleveland Street, the brothel, um, get away scot-free. And he proceeded to name some of those gentlemen. The first one was Lord Arthur Somerset. The second one was the Earl of Euston. Colonel Jervois, who was uh, something to do with with, uh, the Prince of Wales, and various other names. Now, the name Lord Arthur Somerset rang alarm bells because he was, he was 37 years old. He was called Podge. The Prince of Wales nicknamed him Podge because he was quite fat. And he was equerry equerry to 
the Prince of Wales. So he was in a very important position. He was sort of like a confidant, a secretary, in charge of his stable, everything. And so this was a name to conjure with. Um, The case was immediately handed over to Inspector Abeline of the Metropolitan Peace, who the previous year had investigated Jack the Ripper. So he was probably Scotland Yard's best, most high-profile, most talented detective, and he was given this case. And he put a, he went to Cleveland Street to arrest the brothel owner, who was a man called Charles Hammond, but Charles Hammond had been tipped off and he'd flown. He'd gone to Gravesend and from Gravesend to France. So that's how it started. Then various, uh, there is a, a pile of correspondence that high between the Home Secretary, the Director of Public Prosecutions, the Prime Minister, um, the Head of the Metropolitan Police, the, the Director of Public Prosecutions, the Assistant Director of Public Prosecutions, the Lord Chief Justice, the Home Secretary, Memos, letters were flying in all directions at high speed, um, basically saying we should arrest Lord Arthur Somerset. If we've arrested these male prostitutes, we should arrest their clients. Again, a contemporary debate of today. Um, The Home Secretary, Henry Matthews, was dead against arresting him. Um, The Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police James Monroe was all in favour of arresting him and putting him on trial. So it went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. In the meantime, Lord Arthur Somerset had taken a four-month leave of absence and skipped away to Europe, where he sort of wandered around Europe, bemoaning his fate and saying this is all very unfair. Um, Then... uh, a short trial took place. This is a trial of Henry Newlove, the boy who recruited the telegraph boys for prostitution, and a man called George Veck, who lived at the brothel, who was in some way involved in it. He posed as a vicar. He wasn't a vicar, but he called himself the Reverend George Veck. And they were taken to uh, to, to trial and their trial wasn't even listed on the day. It was added on at 4.30 in the afternoon. It took about 20 minutes. And Henry Newlove got four months and George Vett got nine months. Um, sentences of such sort of lightness, it's almost impossible to imagine. Um, Hamilton Cuff, the assistant director of public prosecutions, called it a travesty and said these were ridiculously light sentences. So there we, there we have it. Um, now, just to interrupt, I'm sorry, at this stage, is anybody reporting that there might be a senior member of the royal family involved, even outside the UK? Not quite yet. Okay. It takes a little time for this to seep out. Uh, it's never... Well, it's... A few months later, in September, October, and November, um, European newspapers, Australian newspapers, and American newspapers, particularly the New York Times, start 
running parallel stories. They report Cleveland Street, and then in the next column, there's a very bland paragraph about Prince Albert Victor. <laughs> um, so it's a, a it's a tried and tested method, but. I think it was September, so it started in July. In September, Arthur Newton, who was the solicitor for um, Lord Arthur Somerset, went to see Cuff and said he would leak out, he would reveal Prince Eddie's role in Cleveland Street. Um, Meanwhile, um, Hamilton was in France um, being tailed by Inspector Abilene and a detective from the post office. So he was wandering around France trying to shake off these people. Um, Newton went to see him, the solicitor, and offered him a huge sum of money to go to America, which he accepted. Now, when he arrived, he got a boat from Antwerp to the United States. And when he arrived in New York, he was uh, given $4,000 in addition to the £800 that Arthur Newton gave him in cash. And he arrived with one of the live-in boys from the brothel who was called Herbert Ames, who was also his secretary. Um, Hammond was interesting because Hammond was married. He was married to a French prostitute called Madame Caroline. He had a relationship with another female prostitute called Emily Barker. And he also had this two spoony boys, Frank Hewitt and Herbert Ames. And he also had a relationship now falling into decline with a male prostitute called Jack Saul. So Charles Hammond arrived in America to a huge amount of money. I mean, I think you have to multiply it by... 50 or 60 times to get the equivalent today. So $4,000 must be about $200,000 in today's money, if not more. And remind us where this money had come from. This had come from um, the backers, so to speak, of Lord Arthur Somerset. So it had come from people like um, Hugh Wegelin, who was a banker and another client of Cleveland Street. It had come from Viscount Escher. Um, It had come from Lord Arthur himself and Lord Arthur's family and from other sources. So the money had mysteriously appeared. So this is hush money. This is start a new life in America, don't come back and don't talk to anybody money. That's absolutely it. Okay. Um, there were various boys who were um, the police found and gathered together. So there was Charles Swinscoe, Charles Thickbroom, George Wright, and a boy called Algernon Allies, who um, had been, Henry Newlove had told the police about him. He was basically uh, Lord Arthur's boyfriend, and he'd been a page boy at the Marlborough Club, which was the Prince of Wales club. He started it, Lord Arthur was a member. He'd been accused of theft, and Lord Arthur had taken him to live with him in Hill Street in Mayfair, which was extraordinary, and subsequently moved him into Cleveland Street. These boys were all huddling together, 
being looked after by the police. And Arthur Newton and his assistant approached these boys and said, by the way, boys, the police have no right to keep you. Um, Here is a passage to Australia, a new suit of clothes, and the promise of a pound a week for three years while you get settled, if you'll go. So the scandal was being closed down. Arthur Newton was the central figure. Sorry to jump again. These boys, we keep calling them boys. How old are they? 15, 16, 17, 18. So for most of them, it would still be an illegal act today because they're underage. Yes, the age of consent is 16 now. So... uh, Yes, if they were some of them, it would have been it would have been illegal. Interestingly, um, just to sort of slightly step outside the the story, um, there had been a series of scandals in the 1870s and early 1880s at the post office about immorality amongst telegraph boys. And there are various reports undertaken seeking to try and extirpate this immorality and the the last report um said that about a hundred boys had been detected and dismissed for immoral activity and they'd come up with ideas about how to get rid of it so they wanted to increase the the salary um of messenger boys from three or four shillings a week to seven shillings a week in the hopes that they would get a quote, a better class of boy. Um, They wanted to have supervisors in the kind of rooms where they kind of waited to take telegrams and things like that. Um, So that was it. Anyway, so these boys were being bribed to go to Australia and take their damaging evidence with them. Hammond, the brothel owner, had already taken a very large bribe and gone to America. He settled in Seattle. And at one point, he's claimed that he had $250,000 in an account, in a bank account in California, which had been paid to him to keep him quiet. Now, $250,000 is millions in today's money. Whether or not that was true, we don't know. But we'll come back to Charles Hammond. So... The plot to export the boys and keep them quiet failed because one of them told the police about it. And Arthur Newton was um, arrested, challenged and tried. And he sort of got off because he said that he had permission from Algernon Ally's father to contact him. So it was a kind of wriggle out. Um, In the meantime, in September... This is starting September, October. It's starting to seep out. You can't keep this quiet. And someone called Ernest Park, who ran a radical newspaper called the North London Press, decided to spill the beans. So he wrote that um, two of the principal visitors, two of the principal clients at Cleveland Street were um, Lord Arthur Somerset and the Earl of Euston. And he said Lord Arthur Somerset has fled to Europe and the Earl of Euston 
had fled to Peru. This wasn't true. The Earl of Euston had not fled to Peru. He was living in London and he pursued a charge of criminal libel against Park and the North London press. Um, this came to court and this was a, a, a very celebrated trial. Um, basically, Ernest Park said he had proof and he produced a witness. And the witness was the male prostitute, Jack Saul, who was then 37 or 38. He was Irish. He was known as Dublin Jack. And he'd been involved in the Dublin Castle scandals uh, 10 years earlier. So, what are Dublin Castle scandals? Are these Dublin. sexual scandals in, in Dublin? Yes, yes. Uh, l- let's not go into that because we'll be here. <laughs> right. Um, but anyway, a lot of scandal, a lot of homosexual scandals at this time. A lot of homosexual scandals. It's kept me very busy. Um, <laughs> so D- J- Jack Saul, John Saul, Jack Saul, is produced in court and comes out with this extraordinary story that... Um, He was a male prostitute. He'd known Charles Hammond for 10 years. They'd met on May Day in 1879, that he'd been in love with Charles Hammond. They both worked as professional sodomites or professional Marianne's. They'd both gone out and earned money. He had given all his money to Charles Hammond. Jack Saul had given all his money. He said he used to earn eight or nine pounds a week to gain a fortune as a male prostitute working in London. I should say a Marianne is a prostitute. Isn't a Marianne it? is a, a is the Victorian word for a male prostitute. Well, a gay man or a man who has sex with men, but shading into prostitution. Not, not every Marianne sold themselves for money, but a lot of them did. So it's one of those very broad terms. So this book is, is there, this story is really about sex rather than there's no love affairs in any of these relationships. They're, they're all just about sex. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, I think there was a bit of a love affair between Lord Arthur Somerset and Algernon Allies because he said... Lord Arthur sent Algernon Allies love letters, which Algernon Allies burned. He also sent him postal orders for money. And so I think there was a bit of love going on there. There was certainly love going on between Jack Saul and Charles Hammond, although it turned to hatred. 
10 years after Jack Saul met Charles Hammond, he was still work. Jack Saul was still working as a prostitute. And he complained. He said, you know, I'm totally fed up because um, Charles Hammond has these telegraph boys. You know, they come, they earn their money. I've got to pound the streets looking for punters in order to make ends meet. And, you know, I'm 37 and look at me. So he was quite um, grumpy about that. Anyway, Jack Saul got up in court, and this is the first time, I think, that a male prostitute, a self-confessed male prostitute, stood up in court and gave evidence about his life as a prostitute. And he said that um, some time ago he'd been in in, uh, Mayfair and he'd seen this very tall, handsome, well-dressed man uh, and the man had sort of, you know, winked at him and he'd winked back and they'd started chatting and then got a handsome cab to Cleveland Street. And the man was, according to Jack Saul, the Earl of Euston. Um, and that they'd got to the house, they'd uh, drunk some champagne and then they'd have sex. And Jack Saul said, the Earl of Euston is not an actual sodomite he likes to play with you and then spend on your belly meaning ejaculate um now the earl of euston stood up with great indignation and denied this and he said yes he had visited cleveland street once someone in the street had handed him a card saying pose plastique 19 cleveland street and pose plastique meant that Um, It was a a place where you could go and see naked women, a little bit like a a lap dancing bar or a pole dancing bar today. So he kept the card and then one evening, and his solicitor said it it does no credit to him, out of pure curiosity, he'd gone to Cleveland Street and he was admitted, he paid a guinea And Charles Hammond told him that what was going on there, that it was a male brothel, at which point the Earl of Euston said, I got up and I threatened to knock him down if he didn't let me go immediately. I mean, what strikes me odd is is how did people know about the identity of these aristocrats? Um, I mean, they seem to have been pretty indiscreet in the way that they behaved. They were very indiscreet. Um, I think you have to understand that um, in the 19th century, um, lots of men who had sex with men would not call themselves homosexual or bisexual. They did not define themselves in that way. Um, There are lots of cases in the newspapers where men who've been arrested for immorality with other men said, well, I didn't realize I was doing anything wrong. Um, so, <clears throat> but I mean, there was a law against it. People were going to prison. But it, was, um, it was before the Oscar Wilde trial, wasn't it? So maybe there was, maybe that made a difference later. There was less tolerance of these lifestyles. I don't know. Well, two things. You have to remember that um, gross indecency, which is the charge that Oscar Wilde was um, convicted on, and 
um, had only recently come into law. I think it was 1882 that gross indecency became uh, illegal. Before that, the only charge against that could be brought against gay men or men who had sex with men was sodomy. So if there was no sodomy, technically it wasn't illegal, although there was a sort of undergrowth of vagrancy laws and things like that that men could be prosecuted under. So yes, I think they were indiscreet. I think if you're if you were an earl or a lord and you were equity, equity to the Prince of Wales, I think it gave you a certain sense of invincibility, a certain sense of it won't happen to me. I mean, it's still happening today. Exact certain parallels as we speak. Yeah, you know, people are still behaving in ways that if they're caught, it would ruin their lives and ruin their careers. And yet they still do it. So I think there's no accounting for human frailty or foolishness. There's a sort of class issue here as well, isn't there? Because these were relationships with people between classes. Yes, and that's very important. Um, Throughout the late 19th century, trans-class encounters were... the, The fact that they were trans class, that they crossed class boundaries, was almost worse than the actual deed. Um, I mean, it was very evident in the Oscar Wilde trials that Oscar's relationships with stable boys and uh, servants and things like that was pernicious, evil, and that it almost dwarfed the actual sexual act itself. And certainly in Cleveland Street, there was talk about, you know, the fact that there was, you know, lords were having sex with with telegraph boys. When, after the Earl of Euston had given his evidence, um, and he, he was six foot four tall, he was a very tall, handsome man about town, and it was contrasted with the evidence of a self-confessed male prostitute, no longer in the first flush of youth, and Irish to boot with an Irish accent. Uh, The judge, Mr Justice Hawkins, said of Jack Saul, I have never seen a a more loathsome or melancholy (laughs) spectacle. And it's the Jeremy Thorpe trial all over again. Absolutely. Absolutely it is the Jeremy Thorpe. And and Norman Scott was... Yes. The Jack Saul of his day. And so the jury found uh, for the Earl of Euston and, you know, Jack Saul, that was it. So he was vindicated. There was other evidence. There was evidence of neighbours in Cleveland Street and about four or five people were called and said, have you seen this man going into 19 Cleveland Street? And they said yes on several occasions. But their testimony was dismissed because they were working class and illiterate, and therefore their testimony wasn't valid. So you can see the operations of class going on in the 19th century. I mean, apart from anything else, it's an amazing insight into social history and how things in some senses have changed, but in some senses haven't changed at all in this great country. Not much has changed, actually. Um, interesting. A huge cover-up behind this, the scenes with were, were the royals, were the royals kept out of it throughout, or did it finally come to public attention that Prince... Well, 
Eddie could have been implicated. After the Earl of Euston trial, Ernest Park, the editor of and owner of the North London Press, was sentenced to 12 months in prison without hard labour for his criminal libel. Um, Good Lord. That's amazing. Yeah. 12 months in prison for telling the truth, probably telling the truth. 12 yeah. months. Gosh. Yeah. We better be careful for Andrew, watch say. yourself, mate, with your next book. <laughs> oh, yes. So, um, and there the scandal seemed to sort of settle. Um, but after the trial of the Earl of Euston, there were persistent uh, hints, references, not quite accusations in the press, so much so that someone uh, who wrote an anonymous letter, either to the Times or Telegraph, or perhaps both, calling himself a member of Parliament, said that uh, any suggestion that uh, a member of the royal family is connected with the late the West End scandals, as they were called in Cleveland Street, is utter rubbish. That's total and utter rubbish. So there was a sense that the royal a, a royal had been implicated, and people were moving to disprove that. So, but that's where the scandal settled. But I want to take you now to Seattle, where Charles Hammond the owner of 19 Cleveland Street, um, had settled in America. And he'd opened a bar, um, presumably with the $4,000 or some of the $250,000 he claimed he had. And he was running a bar in Seattle. And he employed an Englishman called Alexander Todhunter. Uh, as a barman. And then five or six months later, so we're in the middle of 1890, a woman claimed that Charles Hammond had stolen things from her, some jewellery, and he was arrested and tried in Seattle for theft. Charles Hammond claimed that this was a setup, that Alexander Todhunter was a member either of the Metropolitan Peace working undercover and or the British Secret Service. Uh, and he'd been sent to deal with Hammond because Charles Hammond had on occasion, said that he might come back to Britain. So Hammond's version, and there are various appeal documents uh, in American archives, his, his sort of appeal letters, where he goes into explicit detail and says that this Alexander Todhunter framed him for this theft in order to put him into prison and to stop him saying anything that might cause ructions. So presumably, um, Hammond knew that Prince Eddie was a visitor and had perhaps some proof or even just his, his account that Prince Eddie had visited 
would be ruinous for the royal family. Um, and the situation was resolved, wasn't it? Because Prince Aidy then died at the age of 28. He conveniently died in 1892 at the age of 28. Anything suspicious in that death? He died of flu um, at Sandringham, um, 30-odd miles from where I am now. We don't know. I mean, was it possible that instead of dying of flu, he was pensioned off and sent off to live his life out, you know, as an ex-royal in secret? Or did he actually die of flu and everyone heaved a huge sigh of relief? We don't know. Gosh, that's a wonderful story if he's, he lived on. Well, we, we have no proof. But um, if you look at photographs of Prince Eddie, um, he looks, he's got a very strange skin colour. He's got a kind of olive skin. He doesn't look at all like a ruddy uh Prince of Wales. Um, and this was remarked on several times during his life that he had a sort of foreign look. One of the boys, um, George Wright, said um, that he met a gentleman at Cleveland Street and he said, another gentleman came in who I should know again, rather a foreign looking chap. Um, it's a tantalising reference. We don't know whether it was Prince Eddie. Um, we don't know that it wasn't. But it, it was a very convenient death. Um, and we just don't know. We, we don't know. I approached the Royal Archives and they are sealed more tightly than the Crown Jewels in the Tower of London. Nothing is coming out of there. So there are no papers on Prince Eddie that will be released, even though he died uh, at the beginning of last century? There are no references to Prince Eddie. With well, the end of the previous century, sorry. Gosh. From, from, from you know, the Royal Archives. Um, you, you write to them and you get a very polite but firm no. Um, and what is the justification for that? Well, I don't know. I mean, perhaps the royal family feel that the royal archives are not and should not be available to the general public to pick over. And that might be a, a, a simple act of protecting their privacy, or it might be that they <clears throat> there are things about Prince Eddie that even now they don't want to publicise. We don't know, but you can't know until you... You can't know if there's nothing, if there's... You, you don't know what you don't know. Without any... Exactly. There, there may be smoke, but I, I can't even see the fire, let alone look at the smoke. But it's just like Andrew, because, again, Andrew hasn't cooperated with the authorities. It would be very easy to release police logs or, or, or have statements from PPOs. Um, and the fact that he hasn't cooperated and that he's been shown to have not told the truth on several occasions does suggest that there's more to the Prince Andrew story than, than perhaps has even emerged so far. And that's presumably what happened with Prince Eddie. Well, there's also the curious case of the, um, 
the child that Prince Eddie allegedly fathered um, with, a, with a, an English woman he met in America. And um, there's very sparse references to that. Um, there's also allegations that um, he made a woman he'd had sex with drink carbolic acid so that she died. Again, that's sort of, these are rumours and speculations in the ether, but that's very hard to pin them down um, without seeing the correspondence of the time. And of course, one of the great tragedies is that, you know, there was wholesale burning of letters, diaries and accounts. I mean, somewhere in Britain, Robert Ross, Oscar Wilde's friend, is reputed to have kept a diary, uh, a a detailed diary of the Oscar Wilde scandal. That's never emerged. It may yet emerge. I mean, I've been trying to track it down for a long time, but it's, it's nobody knows. It may well be in a bank vault somewhere and will be opened in, you know, 2050, um, and then we'll all see if we're still around, probably not, um, what went on. Because, I mean, in some ways, the challenges of writing raw history are bad enough, but also gay history must have these problems where people clearly destroyed evidence. Uh, I mean, do we have anything from Euston or Somerset? I mean, what happened to them? Um, Somerset lived his life out abroad. Um I don't know really what happened to the Earl of Euston. I think he carried on until he died. Probably, I probably got a note of it somewhere, but I can't recall it quite now. I, lo- I do love his excuse for going to Cleveland Street. That's a, a beautiful detail, the pose plastique. Pose plastique. Also, I think you I've say that, put, that put it on his mantelpiece. I think if I had an invitation to a lap da- da- la- dancing club, I wouldn't stick it on my mantelpiece. Well, he was unmarried, so he was probably in his room somewhere or other. So, and of course, I don't suppose he thought that his servants would take any French at all, or perhaps even be able to read it. Yeah, interesting. Um, so, what were the consequences for sort of British gay life or bisexual life of this affair? Perhaps there weren't any. Um, well, in it was many clearly ways. a massive moment of public attention to a sort of gay underworld? In many ways, it was a precursor to the Oscar Wilde trials, uh, which happened, you know, five or six years later. And many of the principals, um, Hamilton Cuff, Sir Frank Lockwood, Asquith, um, were all who were involved in the Cleveland Street trial from a government period, were also involved in the Oscar Wilde trial. Lockwood led the prosecution of Oscar Wilde. So in many ways, it was a precursor. Um, I think Cleveland Street was unsettling, but it had been secret. I think the difference with Oscar Wilde was that he had not only flaunted his sexuality, but he'd rubbed the nose of the British public in it to such an extent that when vengeance came, it was swift and very, very strong. 
Um, so I think, you know, if you look at the history of, of the late 19th century from Fanny and Stella, who were prosecuted in 1871, to Oscar Wilde, who was prosecuted in 1895 and died in 1900, um, it's the story of an underground somehow trying to find an identity. It was largely criminal, um, largely secret, and it remained so until the nine until nineteen sixty seven. Um, so other other scandals, that, you know, perhaps are less well known for the first part of the 20th century. I think a lot, a lot of listeners won't know the Fanny and Stella story, if we want to do a quick minute on that. Yes, well, I mean, it's a wonderful book. Well, Fanny and Stella were two very foolish young men who liked to drag up and liked to go around either dressed effeminately as men or in full drag as women and were not averse to a little bit of prostitution. Um... And what they were watched by the police and arrested, and their trial went to uh, the Houses of Parliament, to Westminster Hall, where they were tried before the Lord Chief Justice with the Attorney General prosecuting them. And it was an extraordinary sledgehammer to try and prosecute two very foolish boys. Uh, and that was, I think, if you abstract yourself, I think that was the establishment trying to come down heavily on any kind of what we might call gay today, or but then identity. So I think it wasn't so much that Fanny and Stella went out and had sex with men for money. I think it was the fact that they rejoiced in their identity. They had an identity. And I think if you look at the wider cultural context, there were huge worries about effeminacy, that somehow or other the the, the British people were being weakened or poisoned by effeminacy, sex between men, homosexuality was seen as a contagion, as a disease. So you have to look at it as a disease model rather than as a sort of social issue or a sexual issue. So the the way Britain coped with its its, uh, huge amount of sex between men, and there was a huge amount, um, was to see it as a public health issue that had to be criminalised and clamped down and contained and controlled. So, you know, they wanted to lock homosexuality down. They wanted to make it so bad that people wouldn't dare practise it. But wasn't there a certain amount of hypocrisy? I mean, doing the Guy Burgess book, I mean, he would appear at diplomatic conferences wearing lipstick. And when the ambassador was was confronted with this, he would say, we tolerate eccentricity in the foreign office. So there were some double standards here, really. There were double standards. And at the same time, as Guy Burgess was was doing those things, you know, the police were conducting a massive purge of gay people 
in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, estimates vary, but the best guesstimate we have is that around 100 to 150,000 gay men were arrested between 1955 and 1965, like Alan Turing. And they were given a choice. They could go to prison or they could have what's called treatment. Now, the treatment would be aversion therapy, which would mean that they would either be given electric shocks or given emetic, something that made them vomit. So the treatment would consist of going into a room there'd be slides of, you know, underground, cheap, black and white pornography of naked men. And when that slide came up, the men would be electrocuted or given the semetic to drink so that they vomited. And that was the treatment. So it's clockwork orange territory, really. Sorry? It's sort of clockwork orange territory. Oh, totally. And... But again, looking at that, you can see that almost as a public health campaign backed up by the police. It wasn't that the powers that be wanted to send every gay man to prison. They wanted to cure them. To cure them, yes, of course. It wasn't that they wanted to... I mean, they did want to punish them, and they did hate them, and they did feel loathing for them. But primarily... They wanted to cure them. This was the cure. And that, I think, is a very strong and rather overlooked and underestimated trend. And so the whole of the 19th century, from the time that, you know, the word Uranian came in, in medico-legal textbooks in France and everywhere else, the whole idea was so that we cannot define this phenomenon except as an aberration as an illness and therefore we must find a way either to stop it spreading to extirpate it or to cure it and i think those were the three prongs you know um clamping down extirpating it and curing it and do you think there's still a hidden history of of of, of the gay subculture that that you know, partly because it's difficult to research and partly and, and there aren't papers. But there's a whole story that hasn't really been told. Uh, the sort of things that you're talking about now and clearly your 19th century books. Yes, I think there is. I mean, I think um, the biggest untold story is the purges of the 50s and 60s. They are the biggest. That's the biggest story because... You know, in, in, in any other, I mean, there's a, a, a lot of, um, you know, tension and stress and anger about the post office uh, managers who allegedly defrauded the post office. Um, nobody has expressed any outrage at all about the 100,000 or more men who were arrested and forcibly treated. I mean, yes, Alan Turing received a pardon from the government as a kind of emblematic faggot, but we don't need sort of a pardon from Gordon Brown. 
what we need is a public inquiry. We need understanding. We need the books to be opened. We need to understand why that happened, what processes led to it. And I think we need some kind of reparation, actually. And I mean, have any of these people come forward? Because clearly some of them must still be alive. A few are still alive. I I mean, you know, (laughs) I'm over 60. So in my longish life, I've talked to many, many men. And when I was younger, um, I would talk to, to gay men in Norwich where I lived and I would hear their stories um, of how, you know, they were <coughs> tracked by the police, how they were arrested, how some were sent to prison. I've spoken to men in London since as a man who wrote a book about it because he was arrested. I think we just don't know the ex- the effect on individuals and we don't know why it happened we don't know why the government decided that this was a public policy issue it clearly wasn't accidental it was happening everywhere so these these files are still closed or just don't exist i don't know because i haven't actually researched them but it's something that i'd like to do because i think that the the great purge is an untold story that probably needs to be told and we need to understand it. And we need to get some kind, I'm not talking about financial reparation, but some kind of acknowledgement that this was wrong, that this was ghastly and that a a so-called civilised country. I mean, another thing that's quite interesting is that when the concentration camps were liberated by the British army after the war pink triangle prisoners were sent from concentration camps to ordinary prison to back to prison because they weren't seen as you know unfairly in prison they were seen as criminal whether or not they'd committed criminal offenses but pink triangle prisoners were not freed and that's another terrible injustice of you know the British state that uh, to join you know the, the the long long list of injustices. We've got two good subjects for you, hopefully, to come back and talk to us in the future. Mm-hmm. And, and your Cleveland Street book is that likely to come out in the next year? Well, or so? It's it's in the pipeline, but I'm doing a novel first, and I really this novel is a book that I really need to write before I fall off my perch, and then I can come back. And I have several ideas for non-fiction books. So, well, please come back and talk talk to us again again. because anytime you want. What you say about the fifties is so. I mean, yes, a a book, but also what a subject for another campaigning drama. That would be amazing. I think. Yes, I think that would that would be a real real uh, winner. Get onto our friends ITV. Okay. Very good to talk to you. (laughs) Nice to talk to you. Thank you so much, Neil. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.